Hello, I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Bon of Six. And Father, I want to continue off the conversation from last week when we were discussing the Pope as both the office and Pope Benedict, um, who has just passed away here on the 5th of, of January here. And asking a question about the, about the office of the Pope, there are some, and I'm talking about things that have been written by the Pope. So not just like, hey, I'm at dinner and I'm talking about some stuff here, but things that have been written that come from the office of the Pope, some of them are concrete, immediately implemented into Catholic life. And some of them seem more as just like, Hey, if you guys get around to it, this is a suggestion. Maybe it's something to think about from time to time. And I bring this up a, as a question of the core concept, it's intriguing to me, but also as a deeper question or maybe a way to ask the question about the vicar of Christ, because essentially everything Jesus did, we, we, we tried to implement in totality from the gospels. Um, and, and the power that's instilled to the Pope has that absolute authority, but it's not in everything that's done. And, and that's, I guess the nuance that I'm trying to ask about in this initial starting question to try to get a better grasp of, of, of all of this is it's something that that's perplexing to me as a Catholic who's come up through Catholic school all the way until I was 22 when you count college. So, and I still don't understand any of this. So I wanted to, to use this moment to, to kind of ask some questions. Well, so your point about doing everything that Jesus said in the gospel sounds really obvious, but really isn't. So just to take one example, um, when Jesus at the Last Supper said, do this in memory of me, uh, what was he talking about? To whom was he talking? And uh, what did it mean? So these things are not obvious. And yet what I'm describing is at the very heart of our faith. We understand Mm -hmm. that to be him speaking to the apostles whom he has effectively ordained bishops in that moment and has asked them to continue consecrating the Eucharist, which he has instituted at the Last Supper, as a memorial of his presence and a representation of his death, the separation of his body and blood, uh, which he then offers for us to have communion. So I just said a very dense couple of sentences which the apostles could not have said in the way that I just said them. So that's the body of uh, living interpretation of understanding a body of teaching, which has uh, unfolded, has grown over time. Uh, How did that grow? Well, uh, popes taught about that. Uh, Bishops taught about that. Councils uh, teased out the details of that and uh, expressed that, found ways to express what the Eucharist is as the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, that uh, it doesn't depend on the priest's holiness, whether it's uh, really the Eucharist, um, that it is a representation of his sacrifice on Calvary uh, in an unbloody fashion, what Christ did in a bloody fashion on the first Good Friday, that it is a meal, uh, uh, that it is, you know, so all of these things are part of what the church's teaching office has unfolded over time. And that body of teaching develops generation after generation 
by taking in the teaching of the previous generation. And then uh, there are certain questions that come up uh, as, a, as an example for something in our time that has been very important is this kind of switch to the subjective. What does it feel like inside? These are the kinds of questions that we ask now. We, have, we live in a very psychological age and in a very experience-oriented age. And, you know, we might root this back in 18th century philosophy and Descartes and I think, therefore, I am. We're very aware of the concrete reality of our internal um, identity, I suppose, and our internal experience as being a kind of factual reality. So anyway, these kinds of experiential questions are important to us. And so then naturally we say, well, what did Jesus feel like inside? That's not a question that they were asking so much for the first 1800 years of the church. Mm -hmm. they, they took him as a particular, you know, I mean, he's human and he's divine and they teased that out. And what he said is therefore God's word and his humanity certainly plays a role. And they didn't try to tease out, you know, all a lot of the interior realities in the same way that we're interested in doing now. So how do we come to understand that? Well, we have to understand that in a way that does not contradict anything that has been taught in the past. Well, what things that have been taught in the past? Uh, by every bishop? Well, no, there's a certain kind of uh, spinal column of essential teaching that has been developed in the past. And that comes through ecumenical councils, and it comes through certain uh, papal uh, writings and, and also preaching. So Leo the Great, for example, gave a lot of homilies, and we those homilies are doctrinal. We have them written down, but they were originally delivered by mouth. So it's not just writing in the sense that we would normally understand that today, but also the writing of things that were spoken. Uh, the chair of St. Peter is ultimately a teaching, a preaching chair. And so uh, we understand the Pope, the, the, the office of preaching as really being the, the way of communicating these truths. So, um, so all of that is to say, really, what we're talking about is a, is a massive body of teaching. And then that body of teaching kind of grows in different ways in different places. And, and as it grows, uh, at some point, it has a way of being questioned. You know, it's like, um, I don't know, there's a, there's a bishop that's uh, maybe teaching more explicitly about, uh, you know, trying to express the humanity of Christ in a particular way, let's say. And he, he kind of pushes on some things and says, uh, well, um, Jesus really wondered if he was God, you know, because he's like human. And sometimes as humans, we don't really know who we are and what we're made for. And probably Jesus wondered whether he was God. When did he come to know that he was God? That's kind of an interesting question. And one can, mm -hmm. uh, you know, understand why that question would be asked. But you know, so th that's the kind of thing that floats out into the space of these sorts of teachings. And then, you know, then there's a, and I don't remember the details of how this uh, went now, although I think it was under Pius Twelfth, maybe, and, uh, and maybe from Humani Generis, there were a number of specific points that he tackled there. But it's like, well, I understand why you would ask that question. But the fact is, he was God. And although we don't know exactly how his interior functioned, where the God knowledge and the human knowledge and all of that intersected, his God knowledge, his divine knowledge was, was present. 
And and God knows that he's God. I mean, what kind of God is he if he doesn't know that he's God, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's some dimensions of uh, how much did Jesus know at what time about his mission, how things would unfold and infuse knowledge divine, you know, so the necessity to pull all of these things apart and, and apply them. But the Pope ultimately is the one who said, well, no, we, we can't say that Jesus didn't know he was God because Jesus is God and God knows that he's God. <laughs> so let's just nail that down. Now, how did the human experience and the human mind of Jesus develop and how did the concepts form and how did his infant understanding connect with his divine identity? And okay, you know, let's, we can keep playing with that, but let's not say he didn't know he was God, right? So this is a kind of papal development and, and clear teaching. Now, it probably wasn't the Pope that developed that. It probably was the, the prefect for the doctrine of the faith. Cardinal Ratzinger's role, to tie that back to our previous uh, episode, um, probably who sketched that out and who pulls out the proper magisterial teaching and who looks at the church's teaching tradition and this great body of knowledge and says, you know, no, no, we can't say this. You can't say it this way. We need to find a different way to say it, a different way to explore this, this question. And then the Pope makes a definitive teaching about that particular point. But that's kind of how these things fit together. It's not the Pope just like coming up with his own ideas and then saying like, ah, I think this, you know, and now it's going to be doctrine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, That's not how all of that develops. So it's always in the context of the universal magisterium. I remember early on, uh, Pope Francis uh, made a statement that, gave a little sense of this. He was speaking uh, a bit extemporaneously. I forget what the occasion was, but he said, uh, um, he said, the poor, you know, talking about uh, the poor people, uh, poverty, people who live in poverty. He says, the poor, the poor is not just a social category. It's a, it's a theological category. And then he said, can I say that? (laughs) So it's a great moment. And then he came back around a little bit later and doubled down on it and, and actually taught it in his uh, exhortation, The Joy of the Gospel, and said, the poor is a theological category because touching the flesh of the poor is touching the flesh of Christ. Because Matthew 25, Jesus says, whatever you did for one of these least of my brothers, you did it to me. And so we can make a kind of identification that, that the poor are, are an expression, they're a kind of sacramental, uh, they, they bring God to us in a particular way. So uh, again, all of that is, is a sense of how this doctrine develops. And then when Pope Francis actually publishes something, and especially at the level of an encyclical, so an encyclical carries the highest weight, and the things that are written in encyclical letters of Pope Francis, but to another degree, his homilies and his apostolic exhortations, even um, apostolic letters, some of these different categories of teaching that he designates, uh, his Wednesday audiences, they all have teaching authority. Now, again, uh, many of the things that he says are not matters of doctrine so much. I mean, he's hypothesizing about something, he's reflecting on something, he's making a pastoral application of something. Um, You know, it's not, he's not trying to teach doctrine in those places. And so, we don't we don't take it as doctrine either, and that's probably I guess the important thing to tease out the difference of here. Whenever he says, you know, in the middle of the square, I want to have a thirty foot Christmas tree, that does not mean every parish needs to have a thirty foot Christmas tree. Um, so, 
when he, I, I remember whenever, um, and I hope I don't misquote this because this is five-ish years ago, um, when Pope Francis had become early, it was early in his papacy, he wrote something to the effect that the way that he viewed capitalism was that capitalism was bad. Um, the, the, I, I don't have all the, the ins and outs of it, but if I'm understanding you correctly, that was not a, because it's not about the doctrine, it's not a, um, an official stance. It basically saying participating in capitalism does not make you anti-Catholic or Christian. It just was his view upon it um, from what he had known of growing up in Central America was not good, which for the record, it's not the same kind of capitalism that you experience here in America. Um, they are very different, almost to the point where they should use different words, but neither here nor there. My point of what I'm trying to say there is that that falls in the same category of we want to have a 30 foot Christmas tree. It's not something that says, Hey, you have to do this to follow the faith. Is that the correct assumption here? Well, and, and, uh, not to, uh, press into your example too much, but it actually helps to illustrate the point. So just for the sake of doing that. So Pope Francis never said capitalism is bad. And he wouldn't say that because, uh, bad is a moral category. And for the Pope to make a moral declaration is also an element of his teaching office. And if he made that moral declaration, we would need to pay attention to that. So, so he wouldn't say, he didn't say that. And he wouldn't say that he did make nuanced declarations. Uh, and I, I don't know them as well as I know John Paul II's nuanced declarations. Pope John Paul II said that unbridled capitalism is intrinsically wrong. So John Paul II said that, unbridled capitalism. So that is to say capitalism without any kind of controls that do things like uh, prevent monopolies. So we in the United States don't have unbridled capitalism. We have a government that inserts certain correctives at different times in order to shape the space of capitalism to create a free market, but not totally free, Uh, free within certain limits that protect the needs of the poor, that protect the disadvantaged, that protect competition, that allow capitalism always to have a place to foster. Uh, And so um, that's the kind of thing that, you know, a Pope would say that there are certain, so likewise with communism, Um, There are a couple of points of communism, which are kind of intrinsic to communism that make it uh, make it wrong, immoral. uh, And and the the not having property, not having private property is a key problem of communism. So any government that prevents the ownership of private property is going to have that problem, whatever you want to call it doesn't matter if you call it capitalism, but you prevent having private property, it's going to be a problem. So it separates also the what's wrong with the names. The names ultimately don't matter, uh, only insofar as they're actually capturing particular qualities of a governmental system. So anyway, Pope Francis um, taught around, and, and he used more like provocative terms also. He said, you know, the problem with uh, the economy today is that instead of the human person being the center of the economy. So in other words, the economy serving the human person, we, mm-hmm. money is the center of the economy, and we have the human person serving money. 
And he said, that's a distortion, that's problematic. And that's universally problematic. Whenever the human person is serving money, then there's something that's fundamentally wrong happening. Uh, money always needs to be serving the person. Now you could argue, well, it's not really the case here. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and so that's where we wrestle with you know, ideas and how they're applied and, and things like that. But, but the, the Pope's teaching office, and he would, if he were really trying to make a clear teaching on this, he would draw from many of the social encyclicals that his predecessors had published, which use very precise language and are trying to express the gospel in today's terms with governments and economies and monies and you know currency and stock uh, exchanges and all kinds of other things that didn't exist 2000 years ago. How do we apply the teachings of the gospel in these spaces? Well, that's not obvious, but that's where the teaching body of the church is, uh, is really helpful. And um, when the Pope teaches something in a definitive way like that, even still it could be amended by you know, subsequent popes might nuance or, or correct or add to or make adjustments around some of those things. Um, and, and so, you know, we have some of that space. And then there's some, you know, a smaller set of teachings which are irreformable. Uh, so, but those tend to be things like, well, like abortion, for one thing. Um, John Paul II really declared that as an irreformable teaching. Killing the innocent human life in the womb is never okay under any circumstances and never will be, period, right? So, but also things like the Immaculate Conception or the Assumption of Mary, that these are irreformable teachings. We, we believe these, period. And so those are uh, some stronger papal statements. Yeah, so um, that, that actually opens another set of questions. So, so that makes sense, this... To, to, to summarize it down to, to one thing, some things that are obvious in the moral teachings, those can be absolute. Murder, bad, therefore abortion is bad. Um, it's pretty straightforward like that. Um, but you, but when, in the last episode, you mentioned how the Pope has to honor the previous teachings of the Pope. And you kind of gave an example there of, of how it actually works. But we also live in an era where there is, no matter what era, new things going on that the church has not experienced before. That's the evolution of, of life in, in all kinds of different fields. You can see that. On the one hand, the faith is living has to be here in today, the eternal present with these new things and essentially have answers upon them. You know, back in the day, um, probably still going on, cloning was not, was not physically possible. It was just an idea maybe in some sci-fi books, but then it actually happened. And then the church has to give an answer on that. I mean, relatively, and, and this time window of thinking about it gets shorter and shorter, the more and more our culture gets driven by it. We need immediate information. Um, inherently, what I have seen many times throughout human beings the more we are forced to give immediate answers, the more likely those answers tend to be wrong. So my question is, is, is that in the, the, the now where we need to give answers immediately, how does the church recognize the problem that maybe one of these immediate answers isn't perfect, but we just know it's not going to be a hundred percent wrong. I mean, I, I what, what I'm trying to get to with is everyone needs an answer. Now it's not easy to give complicated answers 
immediately, especially for something that didn't exist 20 minutes ago. And this problem isn't going away. I mean, it will be, it's cloning in the 1990s. It'll be something different in 2030. It'll be something different in 2035. Like it's just coming more and more faster. So what is the, the vehicle of the papacy to say, oh, I can revisit an idea that I might be wrong on. And also having enough knowledge to hit the correct answer more often than not up front. Um, so some things do have immediate answers. Um, currently cloning is not possible without the destruction of human embryos. And so it's morally wrong, period. So we can't, we can't do cloning the way that it's done uh, because it, it, it involves the destruction of human beings uh, in the embryonic stage of development. So um, some things do allow for immediate responses because they involve other things that are already clear and intrinsically wrong. Um, other things like embryo adoption, for example, uh, we have these frozen fertilized eggs. Is it possible to implant them in a woman's womb for her to adopt a, a frozen embryo? Is that possible? Is that morally licit? So that's been an open question for 25 years. And there's been some development of teaching, some argumentation. There are moral theologians who have sent positions to Rome. Rome has clarified bits and pieces of that, but there actually hasn't been a definitive teaching on that question. Um, another example was for a person in what's called a persistent vegetative state. So the Terry Schiavo case was the most uh, kind of clear and horrific example of someone who could have lived with nutrition and hydration. So all she was receiving was uh, liquid food, basically in an IV, and she could uh, exist indefinitely. And she had, you know, some, whatever, it's not clear. Some people in that state have woken up after like 17 years. I mean, you just can't guarantee that person is dead. And if they're alive, then you have to give them what is basic nutrition. And so, but that was also a question. In fact, the Texas bishops had just published a statement that it wasn't necessary to provide nutrition and hydration to people in a persistent vegetative state. And then Pope John Paul made a declaration that it was <laughs> and overrode that. I don't know that he was addressing them particularly, but just how the timing happened to be there. And uh, so then we, we, uh, you know, have to incorporate that, that teaching, that understanding. So, um, but there are, there are lots of theologians and uh, the, the Vatican discerns certain topics. The Vatican doesn't teach prematurely so that the teaching will be accurate. And so um, artificial birth control was another example. That was a new kind of birth control. So the barrier method, the withdrawal method, these things were clearly wrong. They were violating the meaning of the sexual act. But now we had these pills, which didn't provide an obvious barrier, which didn't interrupt the act. What about this? How do we understand this? And so they put together a commission of theologians, of experts of different kinds to you know, investigate the idea. And then Pope Paul VI gave a, you know, a definitive teaching on that particular question. And so um, anyway, there's, uh, there is not things aren't done immediately when they don't have to be and not everything has to be done immediately. And until the Rome has taught definitively on it. So like the question of embryo adoption, um, my opinion matters. So if somebody comes to me and asks me if it's okay, I would say to them, well, the church hasn't taught on it. Here's my opinion. And mm -hmm. then you need to take in what you can 
and then you may need to make a decision according to your conscience. Um, you, you need to take it up with God because there isn't a clear teaching. Here are the principles. Here's what matters. Here's what I think. And then you got to choose and you got to do the best you can. Yeah. And, and one last one here. And I, the, the, if this has the potential of going skyrocketing, be a very long answer. I apologize. But in, in what you were teaching there about things being clearly right and wrong, um, having talked to you a long time, so I have a lot of different thoughts that have popped into my head. Um, this this one's one is about the notion of people saying I, I I'm just ready to die. I'm not I'm not talking about assisted suicide or anything like that. That's clearly wrong, but I'm talking about those that just basically mentally say I'm done. Um, what is the the church's stance? Because the example you gave was Saint Maximus Colby um, in in the Holocaust saw people who accepted that, and then they would pass away much faster than those who wanted to, to, to keep fighting, if you will. And there's all kinds of different stories across history about that. Does the church have any answer on that? Did those that just say, I'm ready, it's okay, I want to go home? Or it, are we called to essentially constantly fight nonstop tooth and nail? Um, that's probably a little longer answer. It's worth <laughs> exploring in more detail than a yes or no, and, uh, and we're coming up to the end of our time here. So we are. So 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 fair enough. I apologize. This is two weeks in a row I've done unto your father. <laughs> well, with that being said, we will do that for next week. We will go from there, and uh, we hope that everyone out there had a great episode. If you like it, please click like and subscribe and share and all that fun stuff. And we'll be with you here next week. <laughs>